Good morning. Great to be with you. My name is Rob. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And uh, as Eric referenced already, we're in the study in the book of Revelation. So I'm going to go ahead and invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. This is week three. We took a little bit of a week off uh, yesterday, or yesterday, last week. And uh, we're jumping back in this morning. And uh, one of the things you'll see as we unpack this story that happens in this vision of John that actually begins today, we, we begin to see the, the beginnings of his vision, is we'll see that this book of Revelation is a message for specific churches in that day, but it's in actuality a message for all churches for all time, including ours. And I firmly believe that God's Spirit has something he wants to tell us as a body, tell us as a church through this study, and that includes this particular passage we're going to dig into this morning. Two weeks ago, for those of you that were here, we talked about this idea that there's a gap between what we say we believe, like our professed theology, and then what we actually deep down really believe. And, and that sometimes is even subconscious to us. The way we live our lives sort of betrays our true theology, or we call it our functional theology, our lived theology. So, you know, we say, yeah, we believe we're approved and accepted by God, and, and that, that we're, we're good with God through the blood of Christ, and yet we don't relate to God that way. Or we say something like, yeah, I know sin is, is bad, it's supposed to be bad, and yet, honestly, we're not that afraid we just sort of just sin when not thinking we have any consequences in it. I read you a quote by A.W. Tozer that I think is very relevant to this whole series. I want to reread part of it to you this morning. Tozer wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. So in this gap between our professed theology and our functional theology, God's Spirit speaks through his word to us this morning to give us an image of the God that is true, the God that is real, to correct our wrong images, our wrong beliefs about him deep in our hearts. And the focus this morning, as it is through most of the book of Revelation, is the person of Christ. I don't know that there is another passage in the whole Bible that gives a higher view of Christ, a more powerful, comprehensive, incredible, knock-your-socks-off view of Jesus Christ than this passage we're going to study this morning. And as I've been studying it the last couple of weeks, I've felt the weight of it. And it's a joyous weight, but you almost can't feel the joy until you feel the weight. And I'll explain what I mean by the time I get to the end, but I've been praying that we as a body, that you all in this room would feel the weight of seeing Jesus in this passage for who he really is. We'll take it one verse at a time. We're going to begin in verse 9, so let me just read that one verse, and then we'll read a verse, talk a little bit, read a verse or two, talk a little bit. We'll work our way through the passage that way. So Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, here, John, who's the author, not only identifies himself, but he says, I understand what you're going through. I'm a fellow partaker. And there's three things that he's a fellow partaker in. Tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance that are in Jesus. Now, think about those three ideas for a minute. It's an odd combination. 
you have a kingdom in between tribulation and perseverance. Now, this is one of the themes of the book of Revelation. In other words, what you have all throughout this book is you have a struggling, suffering, persecuted people that are a part of a kingdom being ruled by a sovereign king who is in control every moment of time. Right? You see the juxtaposition of a king and suffering. The Holy One who's following control and persecution. How do those two things go together? You ever wrestled with that in your own life, in your own struggles, in your own suffering? Now, we have a different kind of suffering, most of us, than the people that John was writing to in the first century. But the idea is still the same. The juxtaposition of a king who is in control, we're part of a kingdom amidst suffering, amidst persecution. Patmos was an island in the Aegean Sea, southwest of Ephesus. It was used by the Romans to exile people there that were saying things or doing things they didn't like. In this case, we know why John was there. He was preaching Jesus. He was preaching Jesus as the resurrected king, the king of all the universe. And of course, the Romans did not like that. And so they send him to Patmos, and it was here that he gets this vision. Let's keep reading in verse 10. Here's the vision. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Stop there. The message to Revelation was sent to seven specific churches. I want to show you on a map where the churches uh, were. So you see the Aegean Sea, you see Patmos is an island, and uh, you see Ephesus was the closest church to where John was. Now, the order that these letters, these seven letters that we'll start next week with the letter to Ephesus, it'll take an order of kind of a clockwise circle around that area, starting at Ephesus and going all the way up around and ending at Laodicea. It's interesting that the letters are presented in this order. Most people believe it's probably the route of a courier. And there was also almost a circular highway that connected these churches together. Now, I think the number seven is significant. Well, we know it's significant because it's all over Revelation. It's the number of completion, the number of perfection. So most people believe this book, although intended to seven specific churches, more broadly speaking, was intended for all the churches at that time and by the inspiration of God's Spirit all churches for all time. So these seven churches are somewhat representative, that number seven standing for completion. And we'll talk more about the seven churches in the weeks that follow. It's interesting that the vision starts with the sound, the sound of a trumpet. So so before he sees anything, he hears the sound of a voice, and it was like the sound of a trumpet. So when you hear a trumpet, what do you do? You pay attention. I'm a trumpet player. I don't do it a whole lot anymore, but part of my identity growing up in high school and college was I played the trumpet. I played in a lot of weddings. I played probably in dozens of weddings. And usually my role in the wedding is to provide a fanfare and everyone stands up, it demands attention, and then who does their attention turn to? The bride. That's the role of the trumpet. Pay attention. You're about to hear or you're about to see something important. Now, there was one time, I have to tell you, where they had positioned me in the wedding right behind the bridesmaids, so they were right in front of me. So no one could see me, which I like that. But I was literally four or five feet right behind the bridesmaids. And last minute, the wedding director said, would you play a fanfare? I know we didn't rehearse that. We only rehearsed the bridal march. But can you play like a bum, 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 bum? 
ah, fanfare for the bride. I said, sure, I can do that. So the bridesmaids weren't expecting it. I stood four feet behind them. And as, as a brass player, some of you all know this, if you're going to mess up, you mess up big. Right? You have to, just to get the note out. So I took a big breath and I went, Bam! and I split the note. Like in, in brass terms, that means I didn't hit it square. It was like, Wee! and these bridesmaids holding their poor flowers, they literally leaped. Like it was like this. And so they turned around, everybody laughed, and the bride came into the laughter of the congregation, which is, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I was going to demonstrate this for you guys, and then I thought, I don't have enough time. In fact, first service, I skipped the story. But it was a funny story. Now, here's, here's the big idea. The, the trumpet is designed to direct its attention, not to the trumpeter, but to the one to pay attention to, and we're about to meet the one. And so here's what I'd say to us. This series on Revelation, I believe God's going to use this like a trumpet call in our congregation in our family of faith, as Eric was talking about. In other words, the idea is, pay attention, church. Look to the one who is your king. Look to the one who is your savior. He is far more beautiful than you imagine, far more uh, great than you imagine, far more powerful than you imagine, and he has you in his hand. This is a beautiful picture. That's a preview kind of, of, of where we're going in this message. Let's keep rolling. In verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And here it is. He, he's about to meet Jesus here or see Jesus again. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Now, we'll skip the lampstands for a minute because verse 20 is going to tell us what those signify. Let's talk about the one like a son of man. Son of man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. Throughout the Gospels, he used it more than any other title. But the way that John writes it in the Greek here, one like a son of man, it doesn't have the definite article, so it's not the son of the man. It's one like a son of man is a reference to Daniel chapter 7 when Daniel saw a very similar vision. And Daniel was beholding the Ancient of Days, who's God himself, the Father, seated on his throne. And then, I want to pick it up in Daniel 7, verse 13. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. I, Daniel, kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Son of Man is a glorious, powerful individual. So whatever comes in your mind when you think about Jesus, this passage this morning is going to correct that. It's going to bring it back into uh, truth, back into an accurate picture of who Jesus really is. I want to touch on the clothes that he is wearing. A long robe, immediately the, the readers would have recognized, oh, that's the garment of a high priest. That the, the words is described exactly the same way as priestly garb. And then the golden sash. Now, you know, don't picture a, a diagonal sash like a beauty pageant contestant. Picture a horizontal sash right up here around his chest, this, like a belt. And it would have signified someone important, someone uh, with a lot of power and authority. So you have the image of the priest and you have the image of the king coming together, even in his garments. And, and I want to keep reading. And this is the part 
that, that I, I hope sinks in with you and you feel the weight of the symbolical images that's about be, to be used to describe the truth of the person of Jesus. Verse 14. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, this is an incredible word picture. And let me say this outright. Don't think that this is a literal, like, pictorial description of Christ. So when you meet him, you know, you're not going to see that sword coming out of his mouth, literally. Notice all throughout this passage, it was like a, it was like a. He, he's stretching the English vocabulary to convey what it was that he saw. And honestly, words fail him. And as beautiful and powerful this image is, it still doesn't fully capture the glory, the beauty, the might, the power of the one that was standing before him. But I want to walk through the seven word pictures. Each one has significance and it has roots in the Old Testament. Image of God or image of Messiah. And so let's briefly walk through those. White head and hair. Now in ancient culture, of course, white hair indicated age, dignity, experience. In our culture, it somewhat represents those, but it also kind of carries frailty with it. Not so in that culture, right? The patriarch was the one who had the white hair, right? So I've been telling my kids, I've been growing this beard, it's kind of come in white a little bit, and I've said, hey, hey listen, to the, listen to the patriarch, right? Yeah, let, let, let this white hair give, give me a sense of wisdom, you know, even though I'm only, only 40, right? So, I, 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 you know, most of you, I, I, I don't carry weight, in terms of my lifespan, but imagine one who had always been, whose wisdom and experience was from the beginning of time, but instead of getting more frail as time passes, his strength is always constant. That's the idea here. And by the way, it's also a reference to Daniel 7, when God himself, the Ancient of Days, is described the exact same way. Daniel 7, verse 9. His clothing, this is the Ancient of Days, not the Son of Man. The Ancient of Days, clothing was white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. So what John is doing and what, what God gave him in this vision is he's saying, hey, I'm going to blend together this, this idea of the Ancient of Days and the idea of the Son of Man. So the way that N.T. Wright says it, which I think is very helpful, is N.T. Wright writes, when we're looking at Jesus, John is saying, we are looking straight through him at the Father himself. The deity of Christ is represented here. Number two, eyes like a flame of fire. This idea is piercing, that, that fire purges, that it can see right through you, that you cannot hide anything from the flame. This is the idea of God. And, and there's reference here to Daniel 10 verse 6. The next one also comes from Daniel 10, verse 6. Feet like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. Strength, solidness, purity. Bronze was the strongest material that they had back then. They'd make statues to kings of bronze because they would stay. They weren't going anywhere. They were permanent. Voice like the sound of many waters uh, comes from Ezekiel 124. Powerful unstoppable, incessant, overpowering voice. 
Uh, think about uh, a Great Falls, maybe Niagara. You can hear the roar for miles around. Or, or maybe what John might have compared it to was the breakers crashing against the rocks all around that island that he was exiled to. He would have constantly heard the sound of those waves. Held seven stars in his right hand. Right hand is very significant. In the Old Testament, any reference to right hand means power, authority. And the idea of holding something in your hand means you possess it. You have ownership over it. Can you imagine someone holding stars in their hand? Owning the stars, possessing the stars. I mean, just it's no big deal to Jesus. He's holding seven stars, really. A sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This is undoubtedly, from an Old Testament symbolical context, the sword of judgment. This is the sword that you fear. Because if you're on the wrong side of this sword, if you're on the wrong side of justice, you'll be cut down. Now notice the sword's coming out of his mouth. He's not being held in his hand. And it makes us think of Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of of the heart. That's the two-edged sword of Jesus' mouth. His face like the sun shining in its strength. Have you ever tried to look at the sun? You know, you can't do it very long. You have to turn away. You don't have a, a choice. Did you know the sun is 93 million miles away? Can you imagine being right up close to the sun? Vaporize you. You wouldn't stand a chance. Like, it's like, like, dust before the sun. And this is John's experience. And the only thing he can compare to is, 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 you know how you can't look at the sun because it's so bright? I couldn't even look at him. And this is John, the disciple Jesus loved, right? Intimacy in their relationship together. He couldn't even look at him. Now, John had seen this before at Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus went up on a mountain. He took a few of his closest disciples, John included. And in in, in Matthew 17, it says, he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. Same idea. His garments became white as light. This is the glorified Christ. I want to read to you the way that William Hendrickson, a uh, commentator, uh, Revelation commentator, puts it all together. I, I think he does a great job of weaving together the seven images and what they mean and the power and glory of Christ in this picture. Notice that the Son of Man is here pictured as clothed with power and majesty and with awe and terror. That long royal robe, that golden belt buckled at the breast, that hair so glistening white that like the snow on which the sun is shining, it hurts the eye. Those eyes flashing fire eyes which read every heart and penetrate every hidden corner, those feet glowing in order to trample down the wicked, that loud reverberating voice like the mighty breakers booming against the rocky shore of Patmos, that sharp, long, heavy greatsword with two biting edges, that entire appearance as the sun shines in its power, too intense for human eyes to stare at. The entire picture taken as a whole is symbolical of Christ, the Holy One, coming to purge his churches and to punish those who are persecuting his elect. And this is not our common picture of Jesus. 
artists depict Jesus as this pasty white guy holding the little lamb up, you know, up next to his breast, you know, couldn't hurt a flea, couldn't hurt a fly. You ever thought about the fact that the incarnation of Jesus w- w- was for only 33 years, approximately? And Jesus being eternal, always was, will always be, his true full self is not that 33-year image that we see. It's something far more beautiful, far more glorious than that. Remember Philippians 2, right? Jesus had to bend down. He had to humble himself to become like a man. He was veiled in flesh, you see. So the real Jesus is this picture that John encounters, and the only thing he can do to describe it is say, it was like this. It wasn't exactly this, but it was like this. It was like that. He was using all the language he could possibly imagine. You know, we can't wrap our minds around this figure. He's the most intense and most terrifying and most powerful thing that ever could be. This is the Jesus that we so flippantly use his name in vain. This is the Jesus that we have in our minds. We'll all just sort of just, you know, snuggle up with this buddy. Now, before you take that too far, I'm not saying that there's not tenderness and closeness and intimacy in your relationship with Jesus. I hope there is. And just hang with me. We're going to come back to that at the end. But I think we need this view of Jesus. I think we need to remember that, that the true Jesus who is and who was and who will be is far greater, more powerful, more pure, more terrifying, more holy than we imagine him to be. I, I want to uh, walk down this illustration. Y'all remember the Wizard of Oz? Dorothy has this ragtag group and, you know, she you follow, 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 follow the Elbic Road all the way to the wizard. They finally see the wizard. They're completely underwhelmed. It's like some guy back there pulling levers, you know, and he's like, this small little dude. What an underwhelming experience. This is not like that. This is the opposite. John sees Jesus for what he really is and he's overcome. He's overwhelmed. Jesus is far more than he imagined. Not far less. And this is what we have to keep in mind. I want you to see John's response. And I think this is where our application can really begin to sink in in this text. So look at verse uh, 17. 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Isn't this the only possible response? Uh, someone between services came up to me and he gave me this illustration that I thought would be really helpful to use. There are fish that live in these dark caves that have never been exposed to any light whatsoever and their skin is white, albino. They've never had any light at all. They can't see. And when explorers have found them and and shined light on them, they die instantly. Just the light. Now, this is a little bit like what John is at. You know, as wonderful of a pastor as I'm sure John was, as devout of a man of God as I'm sure John was, he encounters the light, he encounters the sun, both S-O-N and S-U-N in that sense, and he falls flat on his face like a dead man. It's the only possible response. Then something unexpected happened. Look at the next part of 17. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. This was the same right hand that had been holding stars. 
And, and that hand is placed on John, and instead of vaporizing him, he hears words of comfort, words of peace. Do not be afraid. When you put your hand on someone, it is a gesture of comfort and blessing. Do not be afraid. Although you stand before the sun, I have the power to vaporize you. I extend my hand of affirmation and approval and blessing. Jesus continues to speak in verse 17. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Here's the reason Jesus can say, do not be afraid. He has power and authority over everything, over death. It's like Jesus is essentially saying, I am the most terrifying, fearsome, greatest, most powerful thing in the universe. And if I say you don't need to fear because my right hand is on you, then what are you going to be afraid of? There's nothing else to fear. Having the keys implies ownership, authority, power over something, right? I've got the keys to my Honda Civic. Jesus has keys of death and Hades. You just think about that for a minute, right? He died, he conquered death, he defeated death, and he stole the keys on his way out. He has full authority over it, y'all. What's left to fear? So here's where John finds himself. This one standing over him has the power to make him disappear in an instant, but this same one of power has his hand of blessing and approval. And there has never been anyone in the history of the universe that has more authority to say, do not be afraid. And by the way, as you know, that's one of God's favorite sentences in the whole Bible. Do not be afraid. And we're, we're not to fear not because God is small and, and he can't hurt us or won't hurt us. We're to fear not because God is huge and he could vaporize us in an instant, but he doesn't, right? His hand of blessing through Jesus Christ's blood says, do not fear. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus continues to talk to John. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things that will take place after these things. And as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And next week, we'll begin to unpack the letters to these seven churches and what they mean for us, beginning with Ephesus. But before we get there, one of the structural keys of the book of Revelation is kind of hidden in verse 19. The past, present, future idea. Write the things that you have seen, past tense, the things that are present tense, the things that will take place. Think about that as an outline or a structure of the book of Revelation. The things which you have seen is this, the vision and the things that John's already talked about, chapter 1. The things which are will be the letters to the churches. The current, here's what's going on in these churches and here's how I feel about it, Jesus will say. Present tense. And then the things which will take place is the prophecy that follows, chapters 4 through 22. Past, present, future, an easy way to think about this book. Now, I want to get into the so what. 
right? And, and I've tried to leave enough time because I think there's just something here for us in this vision. And I'll think about it this way. I don't want you to think, this is a vision that Jesus gave to John for him. I want you to think of it this way. This is a vision that Jesus gave to John for him and for the churches which you are a part of. There's a reason that this vision made it into the scripture. And there's a reason that there are seven churches which represents wholeness, completeness. There's a reason that the Spirit of God inspired John to write this down. It's because it's not just for them. It's not just for them. So I want you to think about this vision for you. I want you to imagine encountering Jesus in his glorified form. You know, it's so big and strong and terrifying, you don't have words. Here's something that I think is true, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian. And I, and I know we've got people in this room that aren't Christians, or you know, may, maybe you're not sure if you're a Christian, because you're just not sure if you take this Jesus stuff seriously. And I get it, right? That's okay, that's where you're at. But here's something that's true, whether it's you, or whether it's the, the, the guy or man or woman in this room that, that's been walking with Christ closely for 60 years. Wherever you fall on that spectrum, we tend to try to cut Jesus down to our size. We just do. So for the unchristian, you want to think about Jesus as this irrelevant historical figure that, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm sure he was a real man, but people just made up all this miracle stuff so they can feel better about themselves and it gives them comfort and peace in their lives. And that's the box that you want to put Jesus in. I say, okay, fine, I understand that box. Those of you that are Christians, here's the box that we try to put him in. We try to put him in this box of, he, he, he's my savior without being my Lord. He's my savior without being my king. I, I can just snuggle up to him without feeling the heat of that. This is what we try to do. We try to cut Jesus down to size. Honestly, we're uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus having eyes of fire and a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Right, we don't want that Jesus because we know when we encounter that Jesus, flat on our face we will go. But I want to say that's a good thing. You're small convenient in a box image of Jesus will not do because it's not real. It's not full. It's not complete. So if you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, and that goes on and on. I mean, that whole creed, if you think about it, most of it's about Jesus. All these things. He's the very Son of God. If you're going to believe all that stuff and then you act like you don't need to be in fear when you are in sin. Now, don't jump to conclusions. I'm not saying, hey, you need to worry about hell if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You don't. But just follow me with there, and I'll, 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 I'll bring it back around. I want you to think about John. John had this intimate, close relationship with Jesus, so much so that he self-described himself as the disciple, disciple whom Jesus loved. There is a scene in, in the Gospels where John puts his head on Jesus' breast, Right? That was real. It was. That was true. It was. And yet Jesus loves John enough to show up in his life in his fully glorified, powerful form and have John fall flat on his face like a dead man. And why did Jesus love John enough to do that? He didn't want John to have any kind of view in Jesus other than the true reality for who he fully is. And I think same with us. Jesus doesn't want us to view him in some small, shallow, convenient, self-focused or therapeutic way. The scripture will not allow that. 
So this interaction between John and Jesus, I think, is so informative for us. And it's so challenging for us. And it's so compelling for us. And it's so comforting for us, too. Let me explain why. When you understand and believe who Jesus fully is, right? Not just as your Savior, although that's so important, but as your Lord, as your King, as your God. When you understand that, and then you understand in light of that how small you are and how twisted you are in the hidden places of your heart and how impure you are, there's no other response than to fall flat on your face at his feet and say, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. Have you ever been at that place? I was at that place this week as I was studying this passage. There were some things in my life that I saw through a new light. And I fell flat on my face and I literally said, have mercy on me, Jesus, a sinner. And I'm grateful for that gift because of what always happens next when we cry out, have mercy on me. He always extends his hand of blessing. He always extends his hand of pardon. He always extends his hand of approval. Y'all, there is not a place in the entire scripture where someone falls before God and says, have mercy on me, and he says, no. The people that God does not extend mercy to are the people that don't ask him for mercy. The people that push him away, the people that are so intent on living their own lives, they don't want to see a God that could vaporize them in a moment's time. Every time you fall on your face before him and say, have mercy on me, a sinner, you get this hand. You get these words, do not be afraid. Right? And what follows that? Do not be afraid because I was dead and I was alive and you begin to see the gospel story unfold for you. In other words, do not be afraid because I was dead for you. I went to the cross and the tomb for you to pay the price of that very thing that you're burdened by right now. And do not be afraid because I didn't stay dead. I raised back to life so that you could get back up, so that you could stand again before me. So that you and I could be face to face, even though I'm like the sun that burns you up. I was dead and now I'm alive and I hold the keys of death and Hades. What is there left to be afraid of? The only one that has the power and right to kill you has pardoned you. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And so when you fall down on your feet, which by the way, I'm, I'm going to say this, this is a bold statement, but I think if you've never been at that place that you've fallen flat on your face before Jesus and said, have mercy on me, a sinner, I'm not sure that you're actually a Christian. Now, let, let me unpack what I mean by that. And my, my goal here is not just to make a lot of you question your salvation, but I'll say it this way. If you've never fallen down on your face and said, Jesus, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner, you haven't fully understood who Jesus is and you haven't fully understood what the gospel is all about. The gospel is the salvation of men. What do you need to be saved for if you've never fallen down your feet before God? I think that's the moment of your conversion. 
when you fall down your face before Jesus and you say, have mercy on me, a sinner, and he reveals to you, I have had mercy on you because I was dead and now I'm alive and now you can be with me. I think that's conversion, y'all. Now, when you do that, when you fall at your feet, his feet, you find that that's the very best place in the universe to be. That's where you want to be, right? The very act of falling kind of initiates this posture of Jesus of tenderness and mercy and blessing and approval and his hand goes on you, just like it did with John. And there's this beautiful tension that comes together when you catch a glimpse of who Jesus is in his power and glory. And here's the tension. On the one hand, you realize there's no place to hide, but on the other hand, you realize there's no reason to fear. Here is the great and beautiful irony of living life as a Christian, living life as a son or daughter of God under the shed blood of the mighty Holy One. The tension is this. The more you see him as, he's, as he truly is, the less you'll be afraid of. The more you know him, the closer you are to him, the more you see his glory and his power, and you also know that you're not consumed by that because his right hand is on you. The more you live into this tension of God is huge and I am a wretched sinner and yet, and yet, and yet, that's where the gospel is in those two words, and yet, I am loved. I can snuggle up to the sun in that sense, right? Isn't that a juxtaposition of images? Picture yourself being embraced by the S-U-N. Can you even imagine that? That's what it's like to be a Christian. So yes, Jesus is close to you. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he is intimate with you. Yes, all those things. You can talk to him in your car like a friend. Yes, you, you can sing songs of love for him. Yes, he's tender. Yes, he knows. Yes, his arm is around you. But don't forget that the one who's doing all those things is this mighty, powerful God that we are to be humble before. And we tend to vacillate back and forth before this tension. I know some of you in this room, you were raised in an environment where it was all fire and brimstone. And as soon as I go down this path, you, you clench up a little bit, right? Others of you in the room, you're just kind of raised with this comfortable idea. You know, Jesus loves me and all this stuff, which is absolutely true. But you also need to remember the reverence part of things. And the, the idea, the key of being a Christian is holding these two ideas in tension. And, and this is the gift to us. Fellowship Bible Church Franklin. This picture is just maybe just for this morning alone, but it is the gift to us, the vision of Christ and his full glory for us, for you. Many of you in this room need that this week. I need it this week. I've got to go one more place and then I'll wrap this up. It is a very, very, very big deal that you fear less the more you know Christ. Here's the reason why it's such a big deal. Because there's almost none of your frustration in life and almost none of your sin that is not rooted in fear. Almost none of your frustration, almost none of your sin doesn't go back to fear. Listen to some of the fears that we all have. Fear of missing out, fear of looking bad, fear of death, fear of being alone, fear of losing our health, fear of failure, fear of being found out, fear of losing someone or something, fear of being insignificant, fear of not being in control, fear of being unloved, fear of the unknown. 
those fears drive us into all kinds of crazy nonsense. In fact, I would challenge you this week, think about the areas that you sin with the most and see if you can trace your habitual sins back to root fears in your own heart of not being loved or not being enough or not being protected, not being secure. In the midst of all your fears, the glorified Jesus says, do not be afraid for I am the living one. I was dead, but now I am alive and I have the keys of death and of Hades. What's left to fear? My right hand is on you. What's left to fear? Do not be afraid. There's not a fear that you have that a larger, more awe-inspiring view of Jesus doesn't speak to. There's just not. And the more that you can imagine yourself prostrate at the feet of the king with his right hand of love and blessing extended on you, the more you're going to experience freedom from fear. The, the more the, the, the power of your sin is just going to dissipate a little bit. The more you're going to understand the gospel, the more you're going to be able to live your life in that way. And I want to pray for you for that. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Our Father, I pray for my body, or this body, your body, but this congregation, I pray that they would have faith to believe, that they would have faith to see you as you are, that their view of God would be ever increasing, that they would never get to the place in their lives that they think, oh, I understand who God is, that my theology is complete, but they would always be stretched in that, that they would always be challenged in that. And God, I know there are men and women in this room right now that what they really probably need more than a sense of awe and reverence and fear of you is, is they probably need to be reminded of your tender touch on their lives and the fact that you are not judging them for all of their sin. And I pray, Father, that a big view of Jesus would give them that. And there are many others of us in the room this morning, God, that honestly we've been living in a cavalier way with our faith. We've just been playing a game would this big view of Jesus help us to see that you're far greater than that? And would we, even this week, be able to have the grace to fall flat on our face at your feet and say, have mercy on me, Jesus, a sinner, that we would know your mercy, that we would feel your touch on us, your grace on us, that we would know that this all-powerful God has his hand on us, and he says, do not be afraid. I've paid for your sin and I know your fears and I've secured your future. We need that faith this week, Father. Would you please grant it to us in your name?